Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hell. From global trust funds to brand new decentralized approaches, this week we're bringing together finance from all levels. What are the pros and cons of these approaches for building an investable pipeline for nature-based solutions? Because there's so much to unpack, this episode is slightly longer than usual. And the unpacking is done by Leah Bonskara, Senior Environment Specialist for the Global Environment Facility, the GF, the largest multilateral trust fund focused on enabling developing countries to invest in nature. Thanks, Dorothy. Jessica Smith, Nature Lead at United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative, UNEPFI. Thanks so much for having me today. And Linwood Pendleton, Executive Director of the Ocean Knowledge Action Network and who leads the Moon Jelly Academy, a new not-for-profit providing science guidance for the emerging field of blockchain-enabled conservation finance. Hi, Dorothy. It's a pleasure to be here. Leah, why don't we start with you? In your view, why don't we see more private sector finance flow towards coastal and marine nature-based solutions? Great question, Dorothy. Uh, one of the key challenges uh, we're finding in gaining private sector financing is the disconnect between the nature-based solution projects and the potential private sector investors, resulting in a misperception of goals and alignment. Since the goal of nature-based solutions projects, whether it's restoring mangroves or rebuilding sustainable fisheries, is it to ensure the health of the ecosystem, the team's expertise is typically in ecology. And so articulating the economic and financial benefits of the project is can, can be challenging, resulting in a misperception that the projects are not bankable, whereas the potential private investors are looking to make a profit and their expertise is understanding the financing. Uh, so they may not find the value in such goals as greater biodiversity or faster recovery after storms. And so building the business acumen of conservationists is an important part of gaining private uh, investments. Another aspect that we've found relates to the risk due to the lack of resiliency and stability of nature-based solutions, where projects often are focused on a particular threat to the ecosystems, let's say habitat destruction of mangroves, but maybe it's still at risk from other threats. So, for example, if a project is only preventing destruction of mangroves, but there's still upstream pollution, then the mangroves could continue to degrade, killing the investment with them. And so ensuring nature-based solutions projects consider the entire watershed and range of threats is critical to success. So Linwood, from your point of view, do you see similar problems? Well, I don't see it the same way. You know, I don't think there's just one kind of, of private sector. And so the kinds of problems that Leah talked about that's specific to a certain kind of private sector investor, but there are a lot of private sector investors out there who really want impact and not financial impact, but they want to see how their investment in conservation results in some change in the world. And that really means trying to verify what impact projects are having and trying to find new ways of doing that so investors can see where their money goes. So for instance, if you put your money into a big pot say it's some big international nonprofit, 
it's really difficult to know how that money influences conservation on the ground. So what I'm seeing is this whole new generation of small-scale private sector investors that want to contribute directly to conservation and then want to see what their money does. And that's really where a lot of the work that I've been focused on in the past couple of months really has um, focused. How do you do that? How do you connect these smaller scale private sector investors, but lots of them with all of these smaller scale nature-based solutions, conservation, and even ocean science projects that don't need a lot of money, but do need money? And then how do you show the investor what they're getting for their money? Jessica, how do you respond to those uh, reflections in the beginning here now? You know, at UNEPFI, we work mainly with the mainstream actors in the commercial finance sector, so banks, insurers, and investors. And we see the issues slightly differently. Um, so we tend to approach nature-based solutions through what we call portfolio alignment. So having financial institutions set portfolio-wide targets for example, uh, for net zero or um, nature positive or increasingly uh, to reduce pollution or through risk and disclosure. What we find interestingly is um, actually a lot of the private actors are calling for more public finance support for the enabling environment around nature-based solutions. Um, so we run something called the Sustainable Blue Economy Finance Principles and Initiative And we have around 50 financial institutions in that group. But we're, what we're increasingly finding is uh, public development banks are joining that and governments are joining that to increase the conversation around how do we create the enabling environment for private sector finance to increase to nature-based solutions in the oceans. And Dorothy, can I jump in for a second? Because I think Jessica said something that really highlights the differences between the private sector investors that she's working with and the ones I'm working with. You, you mentioned that I've been advising these decentralized finance organizations that are focused on conservation. Sometimes that decentralized finance is called the bankless world. And the idea is to create peer-to-peer -peer transfers um, of money. And so when we look at these conservation organizations that using something called the Decentralized Autonomous Organization or a DAO, what they're trying to do is create a peer-to-peer -peer relationship between the investor and the conservation project. So it's not going through the banks. And so it really is, it's a, it's a completely different set of investors and a way of channeling funds than um, what Jessica and Leah described. And if I could build on Linwood's point, you know, I think when we're talking about the mainstream financial sector, they're very much interested in transactions that are at the 500 million and above level. But you actually need to aggregate that from smaller, more medium-sized enterprises in a in a pipeline to really get to transactions in that, that larger mainstream space. So we absolutely need effort at every single level of transaction to be able to get to this, you know, much larger scale. And maybe this is great transition. Leah, back to you. What, what is the Jeff's role in helping to create this transition? Well, you know, uh, there are a few roles that Jeff plays. Uh, one that's kind of the most obvious is we're a foundation, you know, basically a, a grant making foundation. So we pr often provide the seed funding to de-risk additional investments. And so 
Uh, these early investments are often critical to leveraging additional support. We have kind of an ambition of one to seven, every one Jeff Dollar leading to seven additional funding, although that can come from a wide range of uh, sources, including in-kind, but also from the private sector. And then second is, and this kind of builds on what Jessica was and Linwood were talking about in terms of getting at different sources, is we help enable nature-based projects that perhaps lack the financial acumen that I had talked about before. And so we fund incubators and accelerators. That's kind of a new area that we've gotten into in the last several years, which I'm really excited about. And that puts in not only the seed funding through these these programs, but often leads to mentoring and advising the nature-based solution projects, as well as providing market access and also access to other investors. And third, we often work with governments to incentivize establishing financial incentives for private investments, such as tax breaks or subsidies to encourage more private sector investment. Great. And actually, do, do you have an example or two about a project or program that the Jeff uh, funded in actually leveraging private sector finance for nature-based solutions? Well, one of my favorites is the investment we did with the Molloy Fund, a fund managed by the nonprofit Rare, and it deploys capital to sustainable small and medium-sized fishing and seafood-based related enterprises uh, that are working with small-scale fisheries in Indonesia and the Philippines. And so we were an early investor along with a couple of other philanthropic sources that helped catalyze and de-risk additional and larger private investments, including from J.P. Morgan Chase, which led to our $6 million investment catalyzing $16 million. And now the Malloy Fund is supporting nine uh, seafood businesses to ensure that they're sustainable. Great. Thank you, Leah. Well, Jessica, you mentioned the UNEPFI efforts and the role of the Sustainable Blue Economy Finance principles and, and the initiative. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that one? Absolutely. So um, the Sustainable Blue Economy Finance Initiative and principles are um, a joint effort between a number of um, conservation organizations, including UNEP, uh, WWF, the World Resources Institute, and the private financial sector to give a roadmap for how to invest in the ocean economy in a way that's sustainable. And we've created some guidance that really elaborates on the principles. And we launched this last year and focused initially on five ocean-linked sectors. So that's seafood, marine and coastal tourism, ports, maritime transportation, and marine renewable energy. We created this guidance with more than 50 financial institutions and other experts, and uh, it outlines recommendations for decision makers at banks, insurers, and investors on how to avoid and mitigate environmental and social risks, as well as how to make the most of opportunities that are in the sustainable blue economy. We know that thousands of individuals have already uh, downloaded this guidance, um, and we've recently published an exclusions list, which is meant to be very helpful for the risk teams in financial institutions. So we're building out further resources like case studies, and we're broadening this guidance. Um, on the 3rd of March, uh, we will have launched the second round of guidance called Diving Deep, Finance, Ocean Pollution and Coastal Resilience, 
So that will expand the thematic scope of our guidance to cover waste management, including plastics and coastal infrastructure, which are really important within nature-based solutions like mangroves and reefs. So what we're trying to do at Unipify is provide a really actionable toolkit to align financial decision-making with a healthy ocean. And just picking up actually on, on the point that Leah made on the rich to reef approach also that we need to tackle, um, you know, the, the broader ecosystem. Are the players or the stakeholders that you work with aware of this connection between the different ecosystem? And are they ready to bring that into their, their project and their financing? I would say, You know, once we tackle the issue of, of marine and ocean investing, it does, you know, lead us to really understand the interconnections with different ecosystems. And I think one of the issues that's come up recently, and, um, you know, I hope by the time, you know, this podcast is released, there'll be a, a global agreement on plastics. But plastic pollution is one that, um, you know, it's an issue that is understood as a as an ocean issue. But, you know, when we look through the supply chain and the source of, of the issue, we, you know, we see it in uh, terrestrial areas and, and through the freshwater system as well. So I think more sophisticated financial institutions are increasingly able to understand the complexity, but certainly it's it's not easy. And, you know, the more doors we open, uh, the, the more doors behind that um, in some of these issues. So it is challenging for financial institutions because, You know, we can't expect a financial institution to have all this expertise in-house. So we do find it really important that, you know, what expertise we have in the conservation sector and, you know, in the organizations around us can be shared. Um, so we really focus a lot on peer exchange and making sure that the best available knowledge is on hand to financial institutions so they can more readily understand these issues, which are outside their core businesses. Jessica, that's fantastic to hear. I look forward to the release. You know, speaking of the, the plastic aspect, this is an area where the Jeff is getting more engaged in. And so your, your insights will be really useful. What I'm, I'm seeing is that we have more private investment. You know, there's this recognition of waste to wealth and investment, particularly on the downstream side and the waste management, recycling facilities and technologies to deal with collection and so forth. But what we need more investment in is more upstream, which is often the more innovative side of fostering shared economies, reuse and alternative materials. And that's uh, part of the circular economy approach that I think we're all looking to pursue and hopefully will be fostered through the in the global treaty. And I appreciate your optimism that it may be um, approved in the next few days. <laughs> Great. That's yeah, definitely something to, to look forward to. But yeah, Linwood, I wanted to, to come back to you. You already mentioned a little bit the more decentralized approaches. If you could tell us a bit more about them and also what we just heard from Leah and Jessica on this, you know, circular economy, rich to reef. How do smaller projects or efforts like this deal with that? Yeah, so earlier I mentioned this idea of decentralized finance, and we've taken that the next step to start talking about decentralized conservation. We've realized that conservation needs to be more integrated. It needs to have social impacts, ecological impacts. It has created a tendency for us to try to find really big projects that have really clear demonstrable impact, which has come at the expense of really small projects. And so the idea behind decentralized conservation and using blockchain 
is to see if we can find a way of achieving these outcomes by better coordinating a lot of little projects. And that's really time-consuming and costly if you have to do that manually. So blockchain is a way of doing this because you can begin to encode what kinds of projects you'd like to finance. You can begin to make these transfers peer-to-peer using cryptocurrency, and we can come back to that. And you need to focus on verifiable impact, but it doesn't necessarily have to be complicated. It just has to be, what did you say you were going to do? Did you do it? And then if you can kind of put that together at a larger scale and create extra impact measurements from um, having people work together, even as independents, then you can reward that as well. So I think that's really where we're seeing. I think these big kinds of projects like the, the Jeffkin Fund and UNEP FI can fund are really important, but we don't want to focus on those and then forget about all the rest. And it's not just with these big organizations, but what we're seeing now is that a lot of private sector donors also want to fund an earth shot, fund a moon shot for the ocean, things like that. They're looking for one big project that will achieve impact at scale and and solve all of our problems, bang like that, with one kind of investment. And, And I think every situation is unique. And while we think the problems are global, the solutions are not. And that includes solutions to climate, climate adaptation, biodiversity loss. And the ideas have to come from the bottom up. And there are going to be thousands and thousands of new ideas that are required to to make this work. And we want it to be available um, at places where it's traditionally been difficult to manage these big centralized projects. And that's another thing that I think we can do with cryptocurrency. Jessica, I see you nodding. Did you want to jump in? Well, you know, similar to Linwood, I'm I'm really excited about the uh, the opportunities that technology is offering us to really grow finance for a sustainable ocean. And uh, one of the areas we're particularly excited about is the use of remote sensing technology in uh, parametric insurance. And there's a fantastic initiative by the Nature Conservancy in the Mesoamerican Reef to use parametric insurance to protect coral reefs and uh, look at financing models that will protect the reefs because protecting them is ultimately in the best interest of both the insurer and the client. Um, So I think there's a lot of uh, exciting opportunities around technology. We're also looking at opportunities around spatial finance and and UNEP is one of the co-hosts of the Green Digital Finance Alliance. Um, A lot of times these opportunities have so far focused on terrestrial ecosystems, uh, but hopefully more and more of them will focus on uh, marine ecosystems. So I do, uh, I do share Linwood's enthusiasm for um, the potentials of, of technology to uh, really get us to the, the next level. And similarly, the big moonshot opportunities or earthshot opportunities come from smaller ideas that have been tested and built. I'm excited about the smaller piloting opportunities or small scale chances that, that really need the support from institutions like the Jeff to help them, you know, move along, be tested, learnt from and brought to the next level to get to this larger scale that the mainstream finance sector will be ready to invest at a, at a larger scale. Linwood, let's let's get back to, to the innovation and digital finance space, which is certainly growing. But when people hear, for example, cryptocurrency, sort of the alarm bells go off, and they don't really have the best reputation. So is this whole effort legit? Yeah, so 
there, there are a number of things to unpack here. And one is that, as Jessica had mentioned, we, we're really talking about blockchain first, of which cryptocurrency is an application. But we're really interested in using blockchain to make these connections between people to um, really have more transparency in how projects are funded. You decide in advance as a, a group of investors what kinds of projects you're going to invest in. It's in the blockchain. And then any project that is submitted that meets the requirements is automatically funded. And so that's how you reduce a lot of these transaction costs. But then blockchain is also used to incorporate that verification of impact into something that everyone can see. So someone can see, oh, look, this project here in Ghana had this impact. It's verified. It's now in the blockchain. So everybody can see that, which means that you can then sell that to an investor. So when we normally think about how we finance conservation, we spend a lot of money up front, and then we have to work with our recipients to make sure that they deliver the impact they promised. Whereas one of the things that blockchain enables you to do is say, if you have a verifiable impact, let's sort of um, document that with the blockchain and then let someone buy that impact so you can then take that money and then reinvest it in, in other conservation projects. And this is another way of funding innovation that's kind of the opposite of an incubator. So in an incubator, someone has an idea and then you mentor them, you help them. We know that lots of people are out there innovating all the time on their own. And if we could reward them for successful innovation, put that in a blockchain so it becomes their innovation CV, then they can turn around and go back to the conservation DAO or even to a big funder and say, here's the CV, my blockchain CV of conservation impact. And, and it's really important because that avoids other people saying that they achieved this impact. It avoids two different private sector funders from claiming the same impact. With cryptocurrency, the thing to understand about cryptocurrency is there are 6,000 different kinds of cryptocurrency out there. The kind of cryptocurrency that forms the basis of a lot of these conservation DAOs like Moonjelly are called stablecoins. So they're not volatile at all. It is a cryptocurrency that can be transferred from peer to peer, but they're tagged to a fiat currency like the dollar or a euro. They don't change in value. And when these conservation organizations like Moon Jelly have tokens, what they're based on is not mining new tokens for currency. They're based on impacts. We've restored 10 hectares of reef. We put that in what's called an NFT um, for the Jelly token and then say private sector, who's willing to buy this NFT for 10 hectares of restored reef? And then that's where the value of the cryptocurrency, the jelly token comes from. It's not that we're just out there mining like crazy in these farms and you know, places that use coal energy. These are tokens that are based on um, conservation impact. Now, there's still a, a carbon cost for minting that. If you use a cryptocurrency type blockchain, like Polygon, for instance, the carbon cost of minting that token is about the same as a latte, a coffee, right? So if you think about how much it costs normally to 
transfer funds to a developing country, to follow up on those funds, to do assessments, to make sure that there um, isn't corruption, to really do the kind of mentoring that Leah talked about, that costs a lot of money, it costs a lot of carbon, it costs trips to see the project. And that's why we can't do lots of little small projects. If you can use cryptocurrency that comes at a cost of a latte per token, then the carbon cost can be quite small compared to traditional ways of working. Jessica, from UNEPFI's point of view, are there any new frontiers that you are looking into? Well, personally, I think there's a lot of opportunity around coastal infrastructure. So I think with the rising sea levels, we're going to be thinking more and more about how do we protect our coastlines? How do we protect the populations from the worst impacts of increasing natural hazards like sea level rise, coastal erosion and coastal flooding? And uh, as I mentioned, we, we do have the uh, Diving Deep guidance that will have been released on the 3rd. That guidance is going to be exploring both grey infrastructure, so human-made infrastructure like seawalls and also green and nature-based solutions uh, that have been developed in key coastal ecosystems like reefs, mangroves and sand dunes. And our research has shown that the green and nature-based solutions may be around 50% cheaper than traditional infrastructure. So that guidance is going to be suggesting new areas of interest for projects to come into and financial institutions to think about supporting. And this is also backed by, as I mentioned, many of our financial institutions have made commitments to net zero. Many of them have done this through the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which has committed around 150 trillion in assets to the transition to net zero over the coming years. And there is increasing awareness around the high carbon sequestration potential of coastal and marine ecosystems. So blue carbon sinks or blue forests are, are more and more understood so I do think that there's quite a lot of opportunity. And as Linwood said, you know, some of the technical, technological solutions that are increasingly available are helping to do this at scale and helping to verify the impacts. So Linwood, what do you see the issues and the challenges are with these decentralized approaches? Yeah, I think there are three challenges. And so the first one is, is the big elephant in the room. How is this different from sort of previous scams? And in the cryptocurrency sector, there have been some notable scams and, and things happening. It's a really a relatively small fraction of um, all of the ways that blockchain is used. And the key is to understand what let those kinds of bad actors uh, succeed and how do you prevent that? So these conservation DAOs are taking steps like building treasuries so that the, the currency that they use is backed with real money and isn't just money flowing through. Having limits on how fast you can um, withdraw your investment. So really, you'd like people investing in these conservation DAOs for 10 years. And then the other is really limiting how much any single investor can control the treasury in a specific DAO. So that, that's one thing. Um, and that's really sort of easily solvable, but you just have to be very careful about how you structure your DAO. The second thing is, is verifying impact. It's becoming increasingly easy to measure outcomes in the state of our environment, particularly with remote sensing methods. But that's not the same as measuring a project's contribution to those outcomes. So 
Uh, I think we need to develop really good, rigorous scientific guidelines for saying, how do you know this project achieved X? And so th that really means working with projects to make sure that they don't promise the world that they can't deliver or can't show, that they are really concrete in defining the impact that they're going to have. And then they use science to show why they think that impact will result in biodiversity outcomes or social outcomes. And then I think the third, and this is probably the most important thing, is that for decentralized conservation to work, you have to train people uh, to participate in this Web3 ecosystem, which means they have to have wallets, they have to be able to accept cryptocurrency, they have to know how to use Discord, for instance, which is this platform like a very advanced Slack, which is how these DAOs make decisions. So if the DAOs are run just by people from Europe or North, North America, and you've got all that money from the global North being used to tell people in the global South how to manage their ecosystem, you're back to the same kind of colonial uh, conservation that we know has not worked well. So you have to be able to find new ways of empowering people to participate in these DAOs. And, and to do that, the Ocean Knowledge Action Network is now working with Moon Jelly to create an independent 501c3 in the US called Moon Jelly Academy, where we have now uh, an independent science advisory group that's trying to write a paper on how do you measure impact? Um, write another paper on how do you understand the, the environmental costs associated with blockchain and minimize those costs? Because even if it's as small as a latte, you don't want to be spending carbon that you don't have to. And then the third, there's a ped pedagogical component, which is how do we teach people at scale to participate in this new world of Web3 and DAOs and blockchain and cryptocurrency? Jessica, in, in the podcast, we tackled a lot the questions around how to build a nature-based solution pipeline. And actually in our first episode, Ambassador Peter Thompson said that he's getting frustrated very much by people continuously saying that there aren't any project, but he argues that there are actually hundreds, if not thousands of projects and initiatives out there that need funding. So what would you say to him in response? Absolutely. And I would say that this is a very common phenomenon in financing called the missing middle problem, where uh, project developers and those who are entrepreneurial or want to see entrepreneurship succeed feel that there's no finance and financiers feel that there's no projects. And this is a problem of financial intermediation along this relationship between what is a viable project and what is a viable financial transaction. And what we hear from our members who, as I mentioned, are large mainstream financial institutions are that they feel that the, the blended finance solutions that are on the market right now and available are often not taking the share of the risk that they feel the public sector should be sharing. So many of them feel that they're willing to put private finance into a transaction that is de-risked. However, the blended finance you know, has gone into a situation and de-risked the transaction uh, to the point that they feel that it's a comfortable enough transaction from their perspective, but they haven't necessarily put forward 
in a way that uh, incentivizes private finance to come forward. So what we hear from the private finance sector is they would like the public side to take more of the share of the risk, and that would draw in more private finance into these blended finance transactions. We do see that the size of blended finance has plateaued, and maybe this is part of the reason is that um, there seems to be sort of a, a saturation that the private sector feels that you know, there's not enough enticement to grow their investment in this space. The public sector, you know, could be offering more solutions. And one area that we're very interested in at UWFI is the potential for political risk guarantees or other forms of guarantee products, because a lot of the biodiversity and resources of the ocean economy are in the global south, where there are political risk and currency issues. So specific tools that would be functional to de-risk those types of transactions from a guarantee and risk management perspective would be extremely valuable in this equation. Leah, last question to you. When hearing this bandwidth of opportunities, how optimistic are you about the future and the investments in nature-based solutions in the coastal and marine space? It's fantastic to hear. Uh, as Linwood said, I think we need a, a range of opportunities. And as Jessica noted, there are more and more private sector interests, such as the insurance industry. To me, I think we need to have some practical examples and experiences shared and so that we can uh, gain success uh, from the, both the conservation and the financial perspective um, so we can get greater and greater investments through basically blended financing from philanthropic and private investors. Thank you so much to my guests this week, Leah Bonskara, Jessica Smith, and Linwood Pendleton. Next time, we'll wrap up with our final episode of Season 1. We'll be hearing from some leading conservation, climate, and finance figures to explore how best to embrace this new ocean finance world and how we will finance ocean conservation in the future. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN's Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. It was produced by Phil Sansom and Easy Clark, with production assistance from Michelle Burnett. Follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more about what the BNCFF does, please visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. Until next time, I'm Dorothy Hare. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>